This podcast is brought to you by bellacatering.com.au. Guys, the folks at Bella Catering are one of the best catering companies in the whole of Australia and especially in Sydney. But due to the coronavirus restrictions, those lovely folks led by Glenn and Maria are unfortunately struggling but we can help them and I want to help them with this show. So if you guys can and you like delicious things and you're in Australia and you're in Sydney and you're within about a 20K to 30K radius, which is pretty much the entire um, Sydney basin, if you want delicious food at a great price and you want it delivered to your house, bellacatering.com.au is where you need to go. Absolutely delicious stuff, family stuff, like, you know, huge, huge get-togethers that we're doing virtually and things like that. You want leftovers, you want that sort of thing, bam, bellacatering.com.au. Glenn is absolutely a deeply questionable individual. However, that should not be held against him. He has a lovely wife, he has a lovely family, and they've got great staff, and they are awesome. Now, on to the show. This is an excerpt from All the President's Men, written by Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward. At the White House, Ken Clawson acknowledged that in late 1971, Liddy had worked on their law enforcement problems. As a member of the staff of John D. Ehrlichman, President Nixon's principal assistant for domestic affairs. Three days later, on his day off from Virginia's political wars, Bernstein received a call at home from Barry Sussman. Could he come in? The New York Times had a front-page story reporting that at least 15 calls had been placed from Barker's phones in Miami to CRP. More than half the calls were made between March 15 and June 16 to a telephone in an office shared by Liddy and another lawyer. Bernstein had several sources in the Bell system. He was always reluctant to use them to get information about calls because of the ethical questions involved in breaching the confidentiality of a person's telephone records. It was a problem he had never resolved in his mind. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today for the 35th minute of Alan J. Pakula's 1976 masterpiece, All the President's Men, is someone who gets to talk about the reveal of one of the most iconic characters in the histories of movies, and someone who has the greatest level of expertise about the power of people on the other end of the phone. This is a movie riddled with incredible conversations and incredible performances that happen by unseen people. And if I'd had my way again, I would make her come back to do just a bonus episode all about the White House librarian. Uh, But unfortunately, we did not time that correctly. But nonetheless, um, we're going to use her great expertise to talk about the reveal of Deep Throat. I have an Emmy-winning voiceover actress. You have heard her in a whole bunch of stuff. I know if you guys have followed me, you know that I'm a bit of a Star Wars geek, so I'm going to mention the Star Wars stuff first. Shakti in the Clone Wars, Poison Ivy in Batman, Arkham series, which is near and dear to my heart. I named my son Keaton, um, as some of you guys know. But uh, more importantly, this person knows about how to give great voice. So if you have followed the hashtag, hashtag give great voice, you would know this person. Tasha Valencia, welcome to All the President's Minutes. Thank you so much. It's been late from the Blake. And now, just before, like, talk about sort of an explosive way to end our preamble before hitting record. Your first movie was with none other than the legendary Jack Warden. Oh, my God. Yes. Um, I actually was a whole litany of brilliant actors, but the fact that he was in this movie when I saw <laughs> 
you know, I, it's probably was just like 20 years ago. I, I was like, oh, I remember I was in that movie. But now 20 years later, I watched it again. I was like, that's Jack Warden. And he was in, <laughs> I was in his film, rather. I, he wasn't in my I was in his film. But I, I was um, actually my first movie professional job. I was cast by the late, great Louis Mal, uh, who was a French director who, who made Atlantic City and um, Pretty Baby. And so um, I was just um, a normal teenager who, uh, in New York City, I was born and raised in New York City, and my parents were actors, uh, or they had been former actors more when they were young. And my mom still would traipse around and go to open calls and backstage because we would do some extra work together because it was New York City. And, and so one day she said, I, I was actually cutting school one time, watching all my children. <laughs> Uh, and I, I said, what are you doing? And she said, I'm going to an open call for a Latina woman um, in backstage. And I said, well, you know, take my picture in case there's any extra work. I didn't, you know, correlate a uh, casting with extra work. So she goes down and meets with Juliette Taylor, who cast all of Woody Allen's movies. And there's like 40 women. And, you know, there was newspapers back then. They couldn't change the age. They said, sorry, lady. We, we've written the wrong age. We, what we needed is an ingenue, a teenager. And so my mother runs to the front of the line. She goes, Slams my picture down dramatically like this, and, and <laughs> so my mom calls me up, and I'm I'm literally scooping ice cream after after school. Uh, well, of course I didn't go to school that day, but I was scooping my ice cream at the Dudo's ice cream parlor on 63rd and Broadway. And she said, "You've got to get down for this audition." And I, I, I you know, whatever you say, mom. I ran home. I got in my blackest, thinnest looking outfit, <laughs> and I for Juliet Taylor and she said okay you're wonderful uh, we're going to fly you out to Los Angeles and either you'll be back the next day but pack for six weeks in case you get the part so um, I went with a friend of my mom I went to Universal Studios uh, the hotel over there I found out that my leading man was not uh, whom I had hoped at the time which would have been Scott Bayo, but it was <laughs> Sean Penn Wow! and uh, for me I uh, yeah, I know. Wow. But for a teenage girl who only had seen uh, High Times at Richmond High and thinking that your leading man is going to be uh, Spicoli, it wasn't <laughs> wow. <laughs> it was more like, I'm really going to have to act here. But uh, <laughs> but sure enough, I was blessed. I got the part. Louis cast me and I was and Jack Warden was in it and Wallace Shawn was in it. And um, oh, oh gosh, uh, Donald Sutherland, Christina Baranski. Erwin Shaw. It was an amazing cast. And then me. <laughs> I got so lucky to get in there. And uh, But I remember specifically Jack Warden, and he, he played uh, the owner of, of this uh, pawn shop. And he was just wonderful, you know, and he was like, oh, yeah. he, he kind of it seemed like he was like in the stars all the time, but he was much smarter than he, and it's a little movie, you know, it's fine. You can find it. It did not do very well, but it was, it was because he took a, uh, an Italian movie called big deal on Madonna street for those, uh, buffs, those movie buffs. And he, he translated it into an American movie. And, you know, sometimes now it would have been considered an indie film, but at the time, you know, universal made it and, it uh, it did not uh, hold up, but it was a fantastic opportunity to enter. If I had to be, you know, like you, you, it's like my Schwab story. If anyone knows the <laughs> reference, I, I had to tell my mother, tell them I can't do the high school play, you know. And I, <laughs> <laughs> I came back like to my high school like a movie star, so it was it was it was pretty uh, overwhelming. Oh my god, that is that is a way better story than I think you give that credit for. That's 
Absolutely incredible. And um, the six degrees of separation now with people who've been in all the president's men and two peculiar people, a Donald Sutherland as well, for Clute as okay. well. So look at you. You're just absolutely incredible. So I'm totally connected to the movie. See? I, I had no idea that I was, it's almost like, you know, simpatico. Simpatico. <laughs> it's fate. So let's talk. Yeah. When we were talking, you discussed that this movie was something like 20 years ago that you, you'd, you'd seen. And you're coming back to it now. What's it like coming back to it after when it's just sort of a distant memory and coming back to it right now, sort of having to then sort of review it with your, you as a teacher, you as a voice coach, you as a performer, like what's it like coming back, looking at with that completely now sort of critical lens, but with all your experience layering in. It's a very interesting point because it's true that when, when I first watched it, it was just a good movie and it was, the dense movie and, you know, and uh, I thought Robert Redford was hot, you know. that. <laughs> <laughs> and we still can. We still can. There's nothing wrong right, with right. thinking that no, he's hot. No. He's objectively no. beautiful. <laughs> well, and also, you know, the charm of Donald Sutherland, because I, I also, you know, I'm a huge fan of how he transforms himself from, you know, movie, but he, movie to movie, but he always says that just, that that casual way of, of seducing you in, you know, any movie. I think back to Tootsie, and he just has that that incredible um, effortlessness, which of course is not effortless because he's a he's a he's a technician to the nth degree. Um, but uh, what was interesting is twenty years later to have the maturity to see um, and the awareness as a voiceover artist uh, that. The, the textural aspects of how they did use voice in the movie, um, you know, to, to, to make it deeper, to make it more mysterious and interesting um, than, you, than I would have ever thought. Like before, it was just an interesting, and, you know, they have the phone call and you don't know the voice, but now it's like, oh, yeah. Like, and, you know, deep throat, and what a perfect thing to not hear it and, and, and to not see them, but then visualize first, because our imagination is so powerful, right? So yes. if you right away then you've lost that that sense of like who is that what does he look like and who why is he and what is he saying that so yeah it's very it's it's there was a beautiful use of voice as you mentioned you know when we didn't see the characters and and the librarian we never saw right so so there's there's so many characters you know in this scene we get to talk about a great character that you can kind of you can you can build the bridge between that like like you said that inflammation of your imagination like what is that person and then you can actually see them but there's like so many conversations they have with people that you are all you're doing is just you are intently listening you're leaning in and going god that person sounds so great or like i wonder what they would look like or you imagine what they look like and you see him see woodward you know being asked the you know the avatar like doodling like oh this is what this guy looks like you know they you know this is what this person looks like and so that's also a huge part of that that fun but it's it's just an aspect and i think even more so knowing that i was going to talk to you that like i kind of got laser focused in on all of the conversations here just going like there is a performance happening there is sometimes an arc to every conversation and and you knowing how to pin your intonation based on what the character's motivation is at that moment. Like, you know, to be someone who's completely open and candid for a brief second and then to get another question and realize they're being interrogated and then like shut it down, like oh. mid conversation, completely shut it down. So it's just such a, yeah, it's, it's a really fascinating thing. And 
such an integral part of the story and how it's all told out. So it's not just the writing, it's the performance of all those beats and it's really particular. And if you think about it, I, I think, you know, most of those actors were just actors that ended up playing in the voice. I mean, they probably yes. weren't necessarily voice over actors. Mm. And so, you know, as an actor, if you're not a voiceover actor, ironically, I'll have to tell you, I was in an, a, another film as a voiceover actor with Sean Penn for a, a movie that it, it, it escapes me right now, but I, I played his wife only on the phone. <laughs> but, you know, it's one of his movies that escapes me, and I'll have to remember it. So I, I actually got to revisit. We never actually worked together. But, <laughs> But, but Sydney, uh, Sydney Pollack, I got to be directed by Sydney Pollack on the phone for, and we'll have to look up the movie, but it starts with an A it's, uh, with him. Um, oh gosh, what was Sean Penn? And, uh, and he was with that beautiful blonde. Um, oh, okay. right with an yeah, yeah. Sean Penn. Um, and um, he, he, Sydney Pollack directed him and I played his wife uh, only as a voice so over hours. But, you know, you think about it, while you're looking it up, that those actors probably in that moment thought, wow, I'm only going to be, my, my voice is only going to be heard. I'm not going to even be seen. You know, there might have been a certain amount of a letdown, not realizing how pivotal and important it is and how nuanced, but that's the beauty of, you know, I call myself a, a recovering actress, being a voiceover actress. <laughs> I re- recovering actress, fully functioning voiceover artist. That's what I call myself. But um, I recognize, you know, how powerful the voice is alone. But if I were just to have been an actress, uh, and doing it, I would have felt a certain loss of not, you know, being on screen. Do you know what I mean? Oh, the interpreter. Is that the one? Yeah. Sorry, there's no A in the interpreter. Of no. course, the interpreter. Yes. yes. That was the movie that, like, uh, 20 years later, uh, I was, uh, ended up being with him again. And I don't, uh, yeah. So, anyways, but, a lot of crossover. But, yeah, you, you, were, you were saying, so, like, that you then being a voiceover actor as opposed to an actor on the phones, like, you're obviously more dialed in to how to manipulate your voice to, to, to sort of enunciate and reflect different emotions. There seems to be something, and I, I, I think about it with a librarian cause that's like my favorite phone call. Um, maybe that and the guy who reveals to Woodward, um, that, that, uh, that Howard Hunt is in the CIA where he's like, Oh, and of course, you know, that he works for the CIA and, and he kind of goes, and the CIA, because that guy, I feel like he's more like a voiceover actor because he kind of, you can feel him going, I'm going to tell this dummy something. And, <laughs> and if he doesn't know this, then he hasn't done enough background on this guy. And he can tell, like, he's like, oh, you would obviously know then he's in the CIA. And he's like, and the CIA, <laughs> like he's completely taken off guard. So um, I love those two calls for those reasons. But yeah, so would in in your mind then they don't necessarily sound like that are they just organically like running are they running the lines with the actors is that is that probably how how it happens i would say well that movie that was so you know i'll tell you with me and sydney lumet uh, sydney pollock he 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 uh was with me while i was doing he directed me and um it was just a phone call where I was leaving a message. So, but he really worked me as an actor. It wasn't a voice, you know, yeah. it was no manipulation. It was what you're feeling, what you're, so I would imagine absolutely in that movie, that, that phone call was happening in real time and they were filming it. Yes. There was no, that, that, that there was no like doing it in, in a vacuum because everything about that movie, right. They, they, 
what did I hear in, in, in the episode with you and now that they, they flew the trash in. Yes. Authenticity. <laughs> Authenticity is paramount in all the president's men. Yeah, that was just two, those were two actors having a conversation and it could have been the eighth conversation, the ninth, you know, and just seeing what the richness of what, or, or the director saying, you know, you know, and this idiot and, you know, right in real time and, and, and filming it with just that because, there was no way that they wouldn't have had that. And also the performance is that much better because it's a real conversation. And just as if you were in the same room, yes. you still are reacting off each other. Yeah. So outside the frame, outside the frame, outside of Redford's mic range, there is, there is someone sitting there and, and, and allowing him to sort of have a material view of that person in your mind. I think that that's probably, that probably makes a lot of sense. Mm, absolutely. All right, all right. So let's get, let's get to our minute. Let's get to this incredible minute where you watch Woodward finally after butting his head against loose ends around these little tendrils of a story with his partner Bernstein trying to trying to wrap this up, trying to figure out what is going on with this with this story and sort of just a few minutes earlier getting the the great line from uh, Jason Robards Ben Bradley. You don't have it. You don't have it. You know that 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 beautiful uh, negative encouragement. You don't. Yes, <laughs> Tasha just like just imitated a whack to the head because that's exactly what it is. I think some people respond to that and others don't, but I'm certainly I love that they have to respond to it or the story doesn't go any further. Um, so there's a great there's that great moment, and then we get here and it's like he's now exploring a source that is deep inside that we don't know anything about. And then we're going to we're going to sort of hear how that interaction happens. So what Tasha and I are going to do right now, as we do in every episode, is I'm going to play the minute for us now. You guys are going to listen along, and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about it. Yes, this is Woodward. I want to talk about Watergate. I know that we're the not going to talk about that subject. Well, we talked about Wallace. But this is different. That was about the shooting of a man running for president. This is different. How? Not about this story. Don't call me again. Three stewardess hostages were released unharmed. Earlier, the passengers, numbering 113, were released in Philadelphia. Things are warming up in Reykjavik, Iceland, where Bobby Fischer forfeited the second game of that $250,000 World Championship chess match with the Russian champion Boris Spassky. He didn't show up. Fischer lost the opening match to Spassky last night after walking out during the match for 30 minutes to protest the directions and distractions of television cameras, which were later withdrawn. On one- there it is. Just a little bit of Robert Redford chest hair to make us feel good, which is absolutely... <laughs> Outstanding. Just a little bit. Just a little tease of some chest hair. No, it's such a magnificent minute. Uh, I I just purely from an aesthetic perspective, seeing this huge building that's looming over the whole conversation in the background and life happening, but just this government building, you feel like the structure's looming over the whole conversation. It's so cool now and almost quaint in like 2020 to think of a payphone, but I love the anonymity of a payphone and in so many films it's used to such great effect. And just how closed off this guy is on the phone. Tasha, can you like, can you sort of put me in that performance headspace of what 
what exactly is happening with that with that great performance there? I certainly can give you my perspective. Of course, we can't be inside of uh, with a wonderful actor's head, but um, you know, I mean, it was brilliant in terms of the direction of like you, you can see the building in the background, and there's this, this is almost desperate quality that he's running, you know, to find this source that we know we don't even know at this point exists. Yes, and. And, and even the dialing of the phone, you know, everything is um, amplified, right? The dialing and the senior, and, you're, and the expectation is growing in the process, which which we think about, you know, nowadays that would not be happening because, you know, everything's so instant, right? You have your cell phone and you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be able to create that scene because it, you would have just put no. <laughs> on a cell phone in the whole thing, no. right? So, uh, the, know, the modern equivalent is like you pull out the burner phone. You know, you pull out the the secondary phone that isn't your main phone, uh, and you and you call off that phone that looks like a you know a, a mobile phone from the nineties, and you call someone on it, and that's literally the modern equivalent. But it doesn't have the same, you know, it's well, it's, it's, a, it's a harder it's a harder setup, right? Because he walks into right. he walks into that enclosed space and makes that call, and the whole scene is contingent on him being stuck in that little box right next to this huge building. Right, and it's interesting because you know they it, he is physically in there, and he's hearing how Holbrook, you know, on uh, the deep throat. But but even the director made you know the decision to face him away. So you're really not seeing him. You're not physically looking at Redford's face while he's yes. talking. He almost created a voice to voice experience where you really were supposed to be the richness of the fact that there was it was voice to voice and not the distraction of his beautiful space because they could have changed the angle easily yeah and that's a a modern sensibility right that that shot is a hard shot to get away with in 2020 you're not allowed to not show the star of the movie's face while he's on the phone it's like why are we having this phone call (laughs) but you get someone like pacula who's got the confidence to go no this is important exactly as you said i think that's such a great pickup of that electricity you just you can close your eyes in this scene and not lose too much of the power Right. And, and, and the mystery. And of course, again, you know, you, you hear the voice and of course you, you get closer, you get closer to the screen just because mm. it's not very, his, his voice is very low, which makes you come in, you know, makes you, it, it pulls you. That's the beauty of voice, right? Is that, you know, you can be very commanding, but that usually pushes, that repels you. And yes. his, you know, is quiet and it's very, you know, and so it, it draws you to as the, audience along with Redford, both of us were all drawn in yes. to be like, what's on and how do I get this information? And, and even, you know, you have that sense, oh, there's a relationship here, right? Cause he's saying I'm, I'm back for more information and, and, and there's a little bit of that pause and it's like, you know, we're not going there. And then Redford says, you know, about Wallace, you're like, like you talk to me about it's like you talked to me about someone who was trying to assassinate the president like it was nothing like you never questioned that and he's like right what's the deal so but then there's a great delivery though that delivery this this i think it's the essential delivery goes not about this he's just like not about this not not right not this thing it's a total flip off it's just like you know not going to happen so it's just and he does it again without without having to put any kind of like uh you know force like you know f off right there's no like uh not not about i mean he could have done that line a million different ways it was more of that understated it's not going to happen yes 
which is power. I mean, power means when you don't have to push it, you know, not about, he could have easily done a line like really harsh and, but you know, the security of like, I have all the power, you have none. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's over. And then, you know, uh, people believe just to hang up whenever he, you know, he gets to end of the discussion whenever he wants. It's really great to actually think about the power dynamics of voice because so much cinematic language power dynamic discussions happen surrounding framing and aesthetic and like how characters are pictured in frames and what the perspective is to either dwarf a character or make them large in the frame or, you know, what is around them. And so I think it's really great to hear your insights around like the power of the voices and how, how self-evident and obvious it is to you because you as a character is like the more powerful a, a voice character the less they have to yell. It's usually their underlings or, you know, the ancillary characters or, you know, those sorts of things, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not what you're talking about. It's like his true power and, and his true confidence. And it's the same with Robards just minutes earlier. There is no need for him to carry on. It is right. just, this is what it is. You don't have it. He doesn't say, you don't have it. Right. He says, you don't have it. Right. Right, and, 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 and that is very, very much conveyed. I, I think about Meryl Streep in uh, The Devil, Devil Wears Prada. Mm. And I know yes. never, she never, she never went anything above. Oh, that is all. I mean, no, she was she would excoriate you. Excoriate with <laughs> and with that whole belt, you know. And, you know, she did a whole scene where she explains why a, a belt matters, you know. And then and she, uh, who was it, Anne. Uh, Anne Hathaway. She, she just explained. And how they excoriates her, but never raises her voice. I, she to me is the quintessential powerful villain, uh, you know, uh. like multi, but never, like, I don't think her voice ever modulated more like, <laughs> than no, like she, you know, from one to three. Not, not even a, a, a whisper almost. It's just like, no. There's, it's all complete control. Yeah, it's that control. But, but, but what's good is it's also... I like to think about the spaces where the characters on the phones are. So that's another thing that I think a lot about, you know, Hal Holbrook is playing Deep Throat, but later on, um, later on in life, we reveal that it's actually Mark Felt. Like the character of Deep yeah. Throat is a real man named Mark, Mark Felt. who was like the third in, third in command of the FBI. So familiar with all this insider information. There's actually a terrible Lisa, Liam Neeson movie where Liam Neeson stars as Mark Felt, which you can absolutely watch and it's on YouTube right now. So go go for your lives. It's uh, terrible. Uh, but if you if you want to watch What's it, and, I think it actually is called Mark Felt, like the story of Deep Throat or something terrible. But anyway, so we don't we don't need to discuss that now. <laughs> Let's let that one move on. But I think what is great is I imagine him also, and this is something that Woodward doesn't know, but later on the inference, it just sort of matches so perfectly with who this person really was, is if he's in an office, in his office at the FBI. Getting a phone call. And there's a secretary, we're assuming, outside the office or, or and, you know, adjoining offices. It's like, hello, can we talk about this? Not on that subject. So the person who's on the other end of the phone, like if they're just listening to his one-way conversation, they don't know what he's talking about. They're just saying he's not talking about something. And also if his phone calls were being listened to as someone as a source, he's like, I didn't tell them anything. Listen back to the call. You know, like, right. you know, so right. I like to think about, I like to think about that and go, it makes so much sense, but it's like, 
you don't know if it's osmosis that it makes sense or, you know, where, where we can, I mean, you never read too much into anything uh, for a person who's now onto their second minute by minute podcast of a movie that's more than 130 minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> you are, you are the nuanced king. <laughs> but it's, it's. If I watched something 150 times, I'm sure I would see and hear things that, you know, like uh, that, that nobody would ever, except maybe the director. You probably know more than the director, uh, than Pakula himself, because I, I wouldn't have even thought of that, you know, so because you, 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 you can really start, you know, going down the rabbit hole, right? Yeah, it's just the rabbit hole thinking, but I, I just love to think about that of, that's such a great choice because they, the inference is that he's a man, we know from his voice that he's in power. We know that he has this information. And then as the movie goes on, this source we know must be, really must be somewhere in that upper echelon of that community for him to have such a handle on all of the information, even though we don't know exactly what it is. But the fact that he does means like the inference is he's in a huge position of power. Like he's in, you know, the, the silly name they give him, Deep Throat, is because he's in so deep, um, that's where it is, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's so interesting why he um, why he makes it so hard for him, to, you know, why he teases him so much to get the information, you know, to why. And all those, I mean, it's interesting too because we have the, the scene uh, in the phone booth, but then all the scenes that they meet in that incredibly scary, dark garage. Yeah, this is bright <laughs> I mean, as day. This is the only one that we even think that he'll be willing to talk uh you know right now this guy we don't know that he's so strange you'll only meet in a car park when you put a flag in a pot plant out the front of your house um <laughs> yeah so but, yeah uh, but, but very the whole you know he, he's shrouded in mystery even you know right towards the end we only hear his voice but we really never get a full visual on him even the way he was filmed it's like it's a, it's always very muted with the, with the, the darkness so his character, you know, is established in mystery. It stays in mystery. And ironically, of course, up until, what, 2005, we never had confirmation no, that it was There was, there was that, always that. It's like it was one of those things where there was two or three people that we thought maybe um, uh, we thought maybe the guy. Like if you were a conspiracy theorist back then, you're like, oh, he could be the guy. This is the theory that he could be the guy. But then when it is him, it's like – everything makes sense. It's like, of course, he's in the FBI. He knows it. You know, that's why the FBI is saying you're, you're reading our reports verbatim. Um, and also the funny thing is that the real Bob Woodward, who was obviously a consultant on the film, um, had a hand yeah. in casting Hal Holbrook, who looks a hell of a lot like Mark Felt. Like he looks a lot like him, way more than Liam Neeson to, to reference the movie we were just talking about. But he looks like Mark Felt. And so it's hilarious wow. that people are like, oh, you know, maybe Bob, you know, Woodward wouldn't have been silly enough to like recommend that they cast the guy that looked the most like him. Um, but, but evidently but that was the case. Energy, right? I mean, he felt his energy. But I mean, look, you know, Bob Woodward had, uh, had, uh, <laughs> he'd been there. He'd but, been um, there with the real guy, with that real energy, with that real yeah. gravitas. Oh, my God. And and he was he yeah so he probably probably said you know this guy this guy is, is the deal he's perfect for it and uh, and uh, I just love the fact that Robert Redford you know he actually had a hand in the making of the book yes yeah which I, I, I was fascinating that, that I mean his his interest in this was so deep that 
you know, from from the book to the movie, he was he, uh, he was all in, and so you know, obviously fascinated with this particular subject, and and uh, to play. I wasn't necessarily wanting to play Bob Bob Woodward's role, which was a another thing. According, you know, he was dragged into it, but who knows? So, it's, but it was, it's uh, one of the fascinating, strange, and fascinating things about this film is that you know, Redford himself encouraging the guys to write the book, to write it from their perspective because they're the stars of the, you know, in his mind from a movie perspective, they're the stars of the story. Being so deeply involved that he's like, I want the rights, wanting to make it at the time that it was made and knowing the only way to make it is to star him, you know, and then having to cast another huge actor. You know, everyone had had Watergate-itis. Like I can imagine, you know, we're in the middle of COVID-19. I imagine that like, people who want to make the COVID-19 movie, everyone's going to be like, you can't possibly have a take on this that anyone wants to see. It's like that, it's that obvious and that outlandish that they would want to do that, yet they completely pull it off, like like completely and holistically pull it off. It's just one of those amazing facts that continues to... I just can't, I can't understand it. Yeah, the lore of it is amazing how long it lives on. And it has its own, I mean, it, and you're only making it like a legendary to the, to the end. <laughs> you're, you're responsible for probably introducing many, many, many people who might not have even watched the movie of a certain age. Because, uh, you know, I made my, we made our kids watch it. Uh, oh, yes. Please tell me. Please tell me. You got teenagers? I, I know do. You got, I know I, you got I, th- I, you've got three girls. Yeah. No, I have uh, t- uh, two girls and a boy. Oh, two girls um, and a boy. Sorry. Three kids. I will tell you, they, they didn't make it all the way to the end. <laughs> I would like to tell you they were riveted, but they're, I, I, I honestly, uh, from understanding movies then and now, and, I, and this has happened many times, you know, the ability for us to focus and concentrate and have these long scenes and, you know, no special effects uh, <laughs> you know, on on younger audience and, and it's like, and then losing track of who is that mom, you know, I <laughs> because it's riveting but you know we 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 are of an age where we can still digest those and appreciate the nuances but when you take an audience that is only used to the the new paradigm of quick cuts and you know the shorter the better and the attention spans it's really hard to get them to understand it although they're studying my 11th graders u.s history and i and, and i and my son is a history buff but more military history i said this is this is history, uh, you know, in real time, and and condensing condensing it in a way that you know the book, of course, very difficult to get in through, no matter what. But in such a powerful manner, I said, actually, you really just have to watch this because it's history in 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 the, of the way that you need to know this, and you pretty much at least understand a lot about Watergate than you would have if you didn't even investigate this. It's a great appetizer. Like if you are a history buff, you can just have it and it's just usually, and if you're in the right headspace for it, and obviously with kids, you, you, you know, different ages and, and different tastes, you know, if you, if you've, if you've digested a lot of Marvel films and uh, watched Clone Wars that, you know, mom's a voice in, uh, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's a very certain punchy style of storytelling that, you know, this isn't, but I think you're right. There's, there's something about historical film texts or like dramatizations of history um, that can be really powerful because they're not, I don't think they ever purport to, 
to be the history, but what they are is just like a great instigator. Like you, if you're interested, you're going to maybe go off and dive into the book. And then after you do the book, you realize, holy crap, these guys wrote like five books around this. Okay, cool. Like, and then Woodward continued to write about it and, oh, there's other people who wrote about it after them. And, and there's all these great sort of, um, these, these great ways to approach it. But I always am curious to ask when uh, uh, parents of teenagers and things like that get into it. My kids are only three and, you know, three and a half and one, well, nearly two. And so, you know, I've got a long way to go, but I'm looking forward to like the slow, <laughs> the slow, slow, uh, what, 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 like what is age appropriate here? What, what's their patience levels? What's, what's, what can I, what can I conceivably get them to watch and have discussions with? That's what I'm looking forward to. Yes, well, I imagine it's going to be a little bit of a while, but uh, but Listen, uh, the nice, gonna, you know, five. It's all the president's men. All right, five years old. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We'll just see how we go. Disney. We're watching the real bit. We're watching. We're watching. <laughs> well, I think through osmosis, they probably watched it just because of as many times you've watched it as well. <laughs> Maybe. I try and watch it while they're in bed. I don't really have any control over the television in my house. In my office, it's a different thing, Tasha. Like, I'm, in the office is what I want to watch usually. But, uh, no, my, my kids control the remote outside there. I don't have any yeah. – uh, I'm fine with that. Look, this has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh Thank you so much for your time and your insights. Uh, I think it's been really great. And uh, I think for folks who are listening, it's like a, it's awesome to get a new appreciation, a new lens on it from your, from your perspective, Tasha. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. And I, it was, a, it was actually a gift to be able to go back and watch it again. Thanks to you. So I appreciate you uh, in, in giving me the impetus to do that. <laughs> thank you. That was my lovely guest, Tasha. Valenta. You can find her at at Tasha Valencia everywhere on every single social media site, which is T-A-S-I-A-V-A-L-E-N-Z-A. She also is a teacher, so you can find her stuff on TEDx. Just search Tasha Valencia TEDx Talk, and you can see her talk about hashtag give great voice. So it's talking about real confidence in vocal delivery. And uh, today we talked about subtle delivery on a phone call. This has been another One Heat Minute production. Thank you so much for listening along. We have an amazing array of shows. One Heat Minute, obviously. The last 12 minutes of the Mohicans. Increment Vice. Josie and the Podcats. All the President's Minutes, which you're listening to today. And our daily podcast, Con Tan Gen, which is a tight 10, talking to a whole stack of folks in isolation, in quarantine, sort of accounting for in this community everything that's going down. Listen along to that daily. We're going to have great shows coming up for you, some unannounced stuff, which we are going to announce to tease for the future. But if you want to support us, we do have a Patreon, and you can find links to that on oneheatminute.com. If you want to go to our site, oneheatminute.com or incrementvice.com, you can find out more about the shows. And if you want to go to graffitiwithpunctuation.com, you can read about Contingent and our upcoming six-part limited series, Josie and the Podcasts. Until next time, thank you so much. Subscribe, rate, review, share.